So if you have a Bible, it's useful, partly because I'll refer to, to just the section before what we've read just now. If not, I'll, I'll say it. Um, but it's Acts, it's Acts uh, 14 that we're uh, looking at today. Um, and it's worth understanding before we get into Acts 14 that um, Acts 14 and Acts 13 goes together. We need to read those two chapters together. And we have looked at Acts 13 last week, uh, and uh, perhaps you can remember what happened then. It was Paul's ministry, particularly to Jews and God-fearers, that took place last week. And then at the end of all of that, uh, he has obviously provoked some jealousy amongst the Jews. It's their jealousy that then uh, causes them to persuade the crowd to turn against them and eventually become unbearable for them to be... Uh, to be in, in, in Pisidia for any longer, so they left. And now they've gone from there to Iconium. Now the passage that's not on your order of service, it was my mistake, I only discovered late last night that this would have been helpful. I will now read to you, it's verses 1 to 8, and this is what it says. Now at, Icon at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Grab hold of that word, poisoned their minds. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some of the apostles, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country and there they continued to preach the gospel now just a word of summary of that passage Paul went to a Jewish synagogue previously and he focused mainly on the Jews but then the Jews got jealous some of them became believers and then the Gentiles took an interest in the gospel now he goes into Iconium uh, and it's obvious that he goes to the synagogue again, he speaks to the Jews, but the Gentiles more than just take an interest, some of them are really following what they're doing. This is a transition piece, because now in verse 8, Paul is full out busy with Gentiles. He's no longer focusing on Jews, because this place is not Jewish. Uh, and Paul would be later known, as we read the Bible, as the apostle to the Gentiles, where Peter, on the other hand, is the apostle to the Jews. Uh, Paul has as his base Antioch, which is not a Jewish city. That's from where he works, where Peter had as his base Jerusalem, because he was amongst the Jews. And so what we're about to read is just full-on ministry to the Gentiles uh, of Lycenia. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his, use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, 
They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered, him, gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, according, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord, in whom they had believed. So just to clarify, the Antioch that, is, that was just mentioned, there were seven Antiochs in that, state, in, that, in that region in the ancient Near East. So the real Antioch is the one that they're going to head to now, and you'll read about that. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Yeah, this is just a glorious uh, passage, uh, partly because it gives us a neat structure for the whole um, whole book of Acts actually gives us a neat structure for the whole Luke and Acts and, and this is what you've got to remember when we get into Acts it's written by Luke and it's the second part of his two part account we've got the first part is the gospel of Luke and the second part is the Acts of the Apostles and what we've learned last week in chapter 13 is, is really what's happening is that the work of Jesus continues in the work of the church in fact, a line I, I said last week was there's, there's nothing more than a cigarette paper's thickness between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the church. And the, 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 the pivot point of that was what Paul said in chapter 13. He, he, he quoted from Isaiah 49 and he said, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And last week we realized that that verse was quoted about the suffering servant, Jesus. So, so Jesus was the light for the Gentiles. And Paul last week said, and we are a light for the Gentiles. So the ministry of Jesus continues in the ministry of the church. And so Luke and Acts need to be read together. And what I'm hoping to show you today is an elaboration of that phrase that came up last week, that we are to live a cruciform life. That our lives need to take their pattern from Jesus' life. Jesus' life that was the shape of a crucifix. A life that is faced, or a life that is built or patterned on the cross. 
and so that will be the application towards the end is is again how will i die and be resurrected in order to live for the glory of god so big picture was was necessary and that's what i've just given you i think a, a vital aspect here to also see is that jesus's death and resurrection births the church it's a jewish church that he births acts 2 is all about jerusalem and people coming to faith in jerusalem and then from there peter picks up the baton and he runs with the gospel in his jewish circles and he brings the gospel but in acts 12 uh, peter actually has something of a death and resurrection experience he comes to the end of his ministry essentially he passes on the baton to james that will run the church in jerusalem from that moment but peter is in jail and then finally is rescued uh, and then we find out that that's pretty much the end of peter's ministry according to acts there peter was the apostle to the jews peter's death and resurrection gave birth to I say this in a loose way, gave birth to what happens then in Acts 13 to 14. It's the rise of Paul who becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, we can view it another way to say that the church that was birthed after Jesus' death and resurrection is a Jewish church. Then when persecution comes, particularly in the stoning of Stephen, to which Paul was an accomplice, the church becomes persecuted, thrust out of Jerusalem into all the places that jesus said they would go to judea samaria into the corners of the earth the church gets thrust out but the pattern that remains the same is what we saw in jesus's life his ministry what did jesus do he, he came from heaven he preached and performed miracles so he gathered a following the following that he gathered some became his disciples but eventually the whole thing got too hot and he was persecuted persecuted first just a little bit little bit little bit he was constantly trying to put it away as long as he can but finally persecution that led to the crucifixion which looks like the end of the story but that's actually the birth point christ dies his resurrection gives the church its boldness the spirit comes on them and equips them to preach the gospel boldly it's uh it's incredible that 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 same pattern is then followed in the life of peter peter goes from jerusalem into his missionary trip that you can read of from act 7 all the way to acts 12. he preaches the gospel he goes out he gathers followers with preaching and with miracles and then persecution starts to catch up with them eventually it became too hot and there's a sort of a, a death but there's a resurrection that takes the form of the church that has now gone out to the gentiles and Paul picks up that baton and he goes out from Antioch, which is now the new base for the church, no longer Jerusalem, a Gentile base. And he goes out from there, there and back again, all the way to Derby was his fur furthest point, And then he come back. And if you follow this journey, you'll see what he does. The places where he was, 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 was uh, persecuted are the places he returns to. Most notably, in, verse, in chapter 14, he leaves Iconium and they... They, uh, they, they hound him out of the city. Then he goes to Lystra. He preaches the gospel. They beat him up there to the point of death. Then verse 20. He rose up and entered the city the next day. And he went back to Derby. Oh, well, he went further to Derby where he preached the gospel to that city as well. And then he started to follow the path back to Lystra where he was persecuted. To Iconium. 
And to Antioch, we don't have an account of the Antioch persecution. And all the way back to the main Antioch where he came from. It's a there and back again journey for him. Very interesting, isn't it? That his life, his whole ministry, the church's ministry, you're a Christian today because people have done this. Missionaries have done this. They have left their comfort. They've gone out. They've preached the gospel. They've gathered followers. Persecution eventually came and they had to lay down and then someone else took the baton on and it continued to spread like that. That seems to be the pattern of the church. And that therefore is also our pattern. And that was my first point. It was just to give you the bigger context. The second point is probably going to drill into this passage a bit more now. So in what way are we to minister in a cruciform fashion? In what way does Paul minister in a cruciform fashion? In what way are we as believers today in Canada Water Church to minister in a cruciform fashion? And then my last point will be personal. Uh, applying it to the individual a little bit more. So let's let's think churchly for a moment. So here's Paul. He goes to Lystra. Uh, and, and what is it that he does? He goes into Lystra. And this man, crippled from birth, he listened to Paul speaking. So before this man was healed, there was a ministry going on. It was a ministry of speaking. It was Paul's ministry of speaking. We can look at the kind of things that Paul was likely to say because actually... In chapter 13, we've got Paul's first sermon to a Jewish or God-fearing audience. And in Acts 14, we've got Paul's first sermon to a Gentile audience. And I can summarize for you, he's talking about Jesus. <laughs> he's talking about the resurrected, the living Jesus. That's what he's talking about in both cases. So I'm pretty sure that he's speaking about this Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And then this happens, verse 9, And Paul looked intently at him, the crippled man, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up. And he sprang up and began to walk. Now this is not a sermon on miracles, but I will say this, that this miracle is preceded by preaching, and the preaching is focused on the big story, the res resurrection of Jesus. God that sent his son that died for our sins, that is now making everything new. It's this, this change of belief that took place in the heart of the crippled man. And, and that's really the whole story that's taking place in Acts 14. It's, it's the marketplace of ideas that will drive the story forward. And the first character that we meet is a man whose whole perspective has been from the ground. Or perhaps from a makeshift seat. Perhaps a wheelchair. But he looked at the world from this angle. And he looked at the world from a Lyconian angle where they worshipped Zeus and had as priests Hermes. And he was part of a society and a culture where this was the air that he was breathing. That was his perspective. And Paul's uh, miracle here is that this man first puts his belief, he, he uncouples all of what he's known reality to be from his particular vantage point, he uncouples that by the grace of God and places it in the Jesus that Paul is speaking about. God that took on human flesh in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. And it's this that Paul is approaching, that he's trying to do through his preaching. The persuasive preaching to change his beliefs. And how does it happen? He listened. He listened. Now, contrast this with the crowd. 
What is it that they do? Verse 11. When the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Let's just think about this. So there is the possibility that we can misapprehend the Christian faith. We can misidentify, misunderstand the Christian faith. And the way to avoid that error is not only by looking, but particularly by listening. It's when we listen that we avoid that error. Because that's what they do here. They simply look at what Paul has done. If they've listened, Paul would not have said anything of the like that they think he said. It would never have crossed Paul's mind to say that we are God in the flesh and we have come to do these miracles in his name. It's because they're not listening. It's because they're only looking that they misapprehend the Christian faith and they think there are other gods. Now, you've got to be careful of that. If you're a Christian, you've got to be careful of that. If you're a non-Christian considering the Christian faith, you've got to understand, treat the Christian faith not on what you see, but on what you hear. Start there. Sneakers and preachers. Instagram account. It's worth not following. <laughs> but it is preachers. Stephen Furtick being one of them. Uh, who is particularly um, showcased for the expensive clothes and expensive lifestyles that they have. And, and so that as you scroll through an Instagram feed, you might see this picture of the celebrity preacher on the stage strutting his stuff in $2,000 Nike sneakers. Uh, and they'll put a total count on his entire outfit. I can give you mine as well, which you'll be shocked by. <laughs> Second-hand shirt. Well, new trousers. I had to buy new trousers. Bottoms up. No, bottoms lab is what it's called. 50 pounds. It's quite expensive. I thought so as well. Shoes. Sale. They're nice. 68 pounds. That's actually quite expensive now that I think of it. Um, I'm blushing. I, <laughs> why did I even go down this path now? Um, preachers and sneakers. It's all about what Christianity looks like on the outside. And so they're drawing an audience. Thousands, ten thousands of people are following online or in person at great arenas of worship where Christianity is weighed on the look. Everybody looks the same, looks modern, looks hip, looks expensive. And, and it drives the whole message forward. Everything about it is what you see. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful because the aesthetics, although important, they need, to cast, they need to cast the gaze on Christ rather than on the church. Because what we want to hear, what we want to experience is we want to hear the Lord speaking to us. That's what changed this man's mind. And we are so incredibly fickle in the marketplace of ideas. We are easily persuadable, as you will find out as you read this passage. Paul now preaches to them. Paul, of course, preaches the worst sermon in human history. It's the most unsuccessful sermon you've ever seen. But it's done with the most passion you can imagine. You see what he's doing? But when Paul, verse 14, Apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out. I mean, there's a passionate sermon for you. A half naked man that's rushing towards you, preaching, screaming, crying at you. 
And he does it all. And then verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. It didn't work. It just didn't work. With all the pyrotechnics, it didn't work. And look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. We hear nothing of them tearing their clothes and crying and shouting as they run out to the people to persuade them. It seemed it was a fairly easy job. They were highly successful in what they did, these Jews from Antioch. They are Jews that's coming to a Gentile region, and somehow, by doing something, we're not even told what they've done, they persuade the crowds not just to stop listening to Paul and Barnabas, uh, to, to stop worshipping Paul and Barnabas, and not just to stop listening to Paul and Barnabas, but to go the complete opposite way, to grab hold of Paul, Paul and Barnabas and, and pile them up in one corner and do what Jews did with people that broke the law, and that's to stone them. There's no indication that that's what they did in Lyconia at the time. These guys were persuasive. They were brilliant persuaders. I don't know how they did it. We're not told how they did it. But that it was incredibly persuasive, that stands. That's very clear. Now, I think there is an encouragement in here, but we've got to dig for it a little bit. There's an encouragement for Canada Water here. Because ultimately the outcome of what takes place is good. But I can't imagine that at that moment it was good. Paul has preached his heart out. He's done what the Lord has said he should do. He's been as clear as possible about the gospel. The people decided to worship them. And instead, you know, all of this happened. And now he is stoned half dead outside the city. Why did Paul go back? Verse 20 and 21. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Why did Paul go back? Well, in this marketplace of ideas, if there's ideas that are life-giving and there's ideas that are death-giving, why go back to a place where obviously the ideas are, that are death, leading to death are triumphing? Why, why go back? Only if you believe in the cruciform pattern of life will you do that only if you believe that god's way up is the way down that the way to life is through death it's only if you believe what paul later says in verse 22 saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god it's only if at a heart level you ultimately and fundamentally believe that the only way God builds his kingdom is through suffering and tribulation, and heartache and pain and death. It's only if you believe that Jesus' life was a model that we are to follow. That was followed by Peter, that was followed by Paul, that was followed by the church. It's a model that says, I die to the self. I die to the self because if I die to the self, I am giving birth to the church that I can tell you is from just seeing it with the birth of our four children what happens when children come into the world there is tremendous weakness tremendous anguish tremendous agony but it's productive because I'm giving life God has written this pattern into nature that it's through death that life comes. That's the only reason why a man that's stoned 
as if supposing that he was dead got up the next day to go back in there he counted his stoning that evening as a blessing and he would pride himself on his sufferings and trials that he endured because fundamentally he believes the way that the kingdom goes forward is no different to the way that a mother gives birth to a child it's through pain and through agony but it's productive it would lead to the new heavens and the new earth even at great cost to myself Paul, of course, had experience of this, not just from the outside, but now from the inside, but previously from the outside. Stephen was being stoned. And in Acts 7, 54, chapter 8, verse 1, we read, And Saul approved of his stoning. Most commentators agree that Saul, Paul, was standing by when Stephen, this follower of Jesus, was being stoned. The, the hunter has now become the hunted, but his belief in death and resurrection, his faith in the God that can raise the dead, is so fundamental to his whole outlook on life that when it happens to him, he can stand up and keep ministering. And I guess this is where it becomes personal for all of us. You see, the language that's used in this passage about the Jews as they follow Paul on their anti-evangelism mission trip. Because wherever Paul has gone, the Jews appear just after him and they persuade the people to not believe what they're saying. They're off on their anti-evangelism trip. Uh, and the, the words that are used for their activity is called poisoning their minds. Uh, it's a strong phrase because this phrase comes up in reference to Herod. He was poisoning the mind of the Judeans. And it comes up in reference to Pharaoh of Egypt, poisoning the minds of Israel in their time. The way that the Jews at the time were trying to progress their movement was through poisoning people's minds. They rely on the skills of wicked rulers that has gone before them, wicked by everyone's estimation, not just Christian estimation, wicked strategies in order to poison people's minds to persuade them to do what they want to do. In sharp contrast, the Christian way is not to rely on wicked uh, and coercive, manipulative uh, tactics, but on the simple tactic to lay down my life for you. And that is what happens in those conversations when a good friend of yours has been part of your life for a while. You finally one day quite awkwardly say, I want to talk to you about that belief and all of your flippant conversations to that point just sort of hang on i thought we can stay with jokes or we might perhaps venture into philosophy if we're really brave we might go to politics but now you're talking about religion are you serious are we going there but that moment when you go there it's a something begins to die in you because you're going to risk life and limb you're going to risk this relationship you're going to risk your reputation as you start to ask questions. And there's my one application I want to draw from this. You see what Paul does when he tore his clothes. By the way, I won't recommend that as a strategy. <laughs> Shouting at people and crying at them, tearing his clothes. He starts, verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? If the poisoning of minds is something that I'm sure the Jews did not like to act like Herod or like Pharaoh, in their minds they hated them. 
How did they end up accidentally poisoning people's minds? They did that because they never considered why they're doing what they're doing. Is that not perhaps a fantastic question as you start to risk your friendships, risk your life as you share the gospel with friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters and whatever? To start with, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you get so much joy out of a, of a hedonistic life? How do you, why do you get so much joy out of, out of stealing from your employer? Why do, you, why do you love cheating on your girlfriend or your husband or your wife? Why, why? Ask those questions. Ask questions with a real intent on listening to what's being offered. Looking for an opportunity to do what Paul does here. He subverts what they're thinking. It's not obvious, and I don't think I've got the strongest argument in the world, but I'm going to trot it out anyway. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just a little bit there. His argument to this Gentile audience is, look, what he wants to do is he wants to see them turn. That's very obvious. He says, we bring you good news that you should turn. You should turn from what? From these vain things to a living God. He wants to talk to them about the living God, but it requires repentance, turning away from and turning towards. But he uses their desires. You'll see towards the end. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. Verse 17. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. He says, yeah, yeah, you like goodness and joy. The, the trouble is you think that the good things that you have in your life comes from Zeus or from Hermes or from your own efforts. And if I asked you why... Why are you thinking that it came from him? You will have to at some point tell me that he's dead. You'll have to tell me at some point that he can't actually do anything because he's not around. Paul's argument would be, the God that we worship is the one that's giving you all these good gifts, that's satisfying your hearts, and yet you can't answer where it's come from. He's doing a C.S. Lewis on them where he says, if you find in your heart a desire that nothing on earth can satisfy, it can only mean that you were made for another world. You were only made for a relationship with another God. And I'm here to tell you about that God. And he is alive. And he has made everything that's around you. So he tries to change the whole way that they view the world and their own desires. To say, hang on, I've been given this appetite for good things. And I know when my soul is satisfied, and it isn't at the moment. But these guys are talking about a God that is alive. And he is the one that's giving me this desire for good things and for a soul that is at peace. Perhaps I can have it. And perhaps that cripple, whose life certainly wasn't at peace, but now is after he met the God of Paul, perhaps I also need to listen to what they're saying. Perhaps the answer for my soul satisfaction is there. And that my crippled soul could also jump and leap like this man that's been healed. That's his failed strategy. That's partly why it's a weak argument, because even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. But God used that failure to build the church. And he uses our failures as we go around laying down our lives, speaking to people about their desires that has their root and origin and their final destination in God. As we do that, we're always dying a little when we do it. Now, Paul knew that our expectations of the Christian life would be preachers in sneakers it would be success and happiness and wealth and health and prosperity 
So he has to warn the disciples, verse 22. He went back. He visited these new disciples. When he comes to a village, he preaches the gospel. He performs some miracles. Some come to faith. Persecution comes. They nearly kill him. He leaves. But then he comes back later. And he comes back later. And what is he coming back to do? He comes back to encourage them, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Our expectations should be set for this week, for this month, for this year, that many tribulations will still come to us. And that's where it gets painful. I want to give you two examples and then close. The first example, of course, is what you can see on the news at the moment. Afghanistan. House churches. Churches no bigger than ours. With ministers like me, living locally in a community, that have, because of the military intervention over the years, been able to cobble together some sort of community that worships God. The Taliban, uh, David Cassidy in uh, in 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 Boca Raton in Florida knows someone who's in these house church movements. He said, we've just now received news that uh, the Taliban has warned many of these house church leaders that we know who you are, we know where you live, and we're coming for you. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And we look at that and we think, how can this lead to any good? We don't know, but we know that this was the foundation of the church. We know that the church, as it's founded on Christ through his death and resurrection, gave birth to the church in Jerusalem. As the church in Jerusalem was persecuted, gave birth to the Gentile church. As the Gentile church was persecuted, gave birth to the global church, the Holy Catholic Church of God. We must believe that this somehow in God's plan will do the same thing. Because ultimate reality is not limited to the 70 or 80 years that we get to live in this life. Ultimate reality is God that is above the firmament of this life that we live in. That is before our beginning and after our end. And as we live for that truth, well then we lay down our lives in a way that gives birth to the church. So that's perhaps a more distant example. This week we had a closer example of uh, a friend of ours, uh, Ruth van den Broek, who passed away after an illness many, many years, 10, 10 years perhaps. I, I've never met her personally, but I know her dad quite well. And um, she had suffered tremendously. And I'm reading the comments. I'm reading the notes that people are leaving. 10 years, she's had a lung transplant at some point. She's been in, in, in Sue Ryder in, in Oxford for the last 18 months. Really severe, difficult health concerns. Every breath was a struggle for her. And David writes in his letter to, to his friends, he says, When God planned out Ruth's life, just stop there for a moment. When God planned out Ruth's life, what a perspective. Immediately says, her life with all her suffering, 10 years of what seems like needless, pointless suffering. When God planned out his life, her life, he knew he has one gift that will outweigh the burden of the pain of the illness that she has. And then, of course, I immediately think, yes, Jesus. And then he says, her husband, David. <laughs> David faithfully married her when she was ill, cared for her for the last 10 years with incredible faithfulness, with great tenderness, incredible love. The testimonies about his love towards her is awe-inspiring. 
And it's then that this father of the bride can say that God's good gift to his dying daughter was temporary, this man. And then ultimately, Jesus Christ, the one who took the last breath on the cross to give us breath. And that's where the hope is. Can you see, that's what a life looks like that finds its beginning and its end, not in birth and in death, but finds its beginning and its end in heaven. That says that my life is a constant dying, but in order to give birth to this much larger truth, bringing people into this. And life was a testimony. The church in Afghanistan's life is going to be a testimony. Is your life going to be a testimony? A witness? That through dying, you bring life. Paul being beaten up to the point of death. Resurrected. And he goes on with his mission to build the church of which we are all today beneficiaries. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's traces of this spiritual principle everywhere we look. Death and resurrection. Life that follows death. Selflessness giving rise to life and beauty and truth. Father, we long to be part, we long to be part of the of the participants of this death and resurrection story. But even as we say that, we want to grab those words and put them back in our mouth because when we say we want to be part of death and resurrection, we know we're saying we are ready to die and we're not. So we ask, Father, that if the birth pains come, if the tribulations come in our lives, they will often seem pointless. They will often seem meaningless. Will you help us to keep our eyes on the ultimate goal? That through many tribulations, many and varied, some pointless seemingly, some incomprehensible and unreasonable, through many tribulations, your kingdom must come. That this is the path of the kingdom. So Father, please forgive us for tuning our lives constantly to avoid suffering at all costs and being shocked and surprised when it comes our way. Please set our expectations today, tomorrow, this week, this next year that's before us, the next 10 years, the next, the next part of our lifetime on earth to expect tribulations, to expect suffering. And for that reason, to store up in our hearts truth with which we can meet this tribulation. Words like Paul's words as he encouraged the disciples, through many tribulations, the kingdom must come. Well, many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Strengthen us, we pray. With this, Father, we, we pray for the, for the Field family and for the Van and Brook family, for David particularly as he's lost his wife. We pray that you will certainly and assuredly wrap them up in the arms of love that only you can do. Draw him close. We pray for David and for Sue that's lost a daughter and for the other siblings. 
please let them see the beauty of Ruth's life and worship you for that. We pray, Father, for the church in Afghanistan. We bring our brothers and sisters to your throne of grace. And all we can plead is, Father, that you will have mercy. That you will have mercy that through your providential care, you would save them. You would provide for them. You would care for them. We bring before you particularly young girls that will bear the brunt of, of this wicked regime. Please, Father, do not let them rely on wicked strategies to avoid the suffering, but let them entrust themselves to you. Please be merciful to them, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.